this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, exploiting Pamela Anderson again, question mark, edition. It's Wednesday, February 16th, 2022. On today's show, Pam and Tommy is on Hulu. It's a limited series that tells the purportedly whole story behind the theft and publication of the homemade sex tape featuring Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee. And then Flea is... It's really an unusual movie. I hope we can do it justice. It's a documentary whose story is told mostly through animation. It's about uh, an Afghan refugee and his escape first from Kabul and then Moscow and his resettling in Copenhagen. It's been nominated for multiple Oscars, including Best International Feature Film. Uh, I loved it. Finally, why and how does something so beautiful as a friendship die? We discuss an Atlantic monthly piece by the writer Jennifer Senior. Joining me today is Julia Turner, Deputy Managing Editor of the LA Times. Julia, hey, how are you? Hello, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens. Uh, and Dana is the film critic for Slate, but also the author of uh, Cameraman, colon. <laughs> 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 I mean, welcome to the world's worst running joke is my total fucking inability to master the subtitle of your book. Oh, but Steve, I don't have I, it right I join you. Join the club. I also can't remember that subtitle. And as I said at our live event, and I say this with all love for my editor who suggested it, I think that that subtitle is too long, and that's why no one can remember it. SEO friendly, but it's moving units, right? Uh, as far as we know, yeah. I mean, this is sort of a, a crazy moment where we're still calculating the sales and stuff, but based on the kind of buzz surrounding it, I think that my book is a hit. But I don't want to say that it's such a hit that I'm not encouraging listeners who have not yet bought it to buy it. Because if you like my voice well enough to listen to it every week on this show, you had damn well better <laughs> go to the place where you can get Uncut Dana for 432 pages. I love it. I love the thought of Uncut Dana and guys in green visors counting your money in a back room <laughs> somewhere. That's the Dana Stevens I know and love. Uh, guys, shall we make a uh, podcast? Let's yeah. do it. Let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. She was the star of the hit syndicated TV show Baywatch, became a, pardon the expression, like a sex icon in her tight one-piece lifeguard swimsuit, fire engine red. He was the drummer, meanwhile, for the metal band Motley Crue. He was a legendary bad boy, party boy, basically attach any masculine-centered pejorative to the word boy, and it'll probably fit Tommy Lee. They met, fell in love, they got married, though not necessarily in that order, only to discover that a homemade video they'd shot of their lovemaking had been pilfered and was now for sale on this new and dark frontier known as the internet. 
Pam and Tommy is a multi-parter. It's now streaming on Hulu. It stars Lily James and Sebastian Stan in the title roles. It also stars, uh, really, um, Seth Rogen. It's almost his story as much as theirs as Rand Gautier, the man who stole and distributed the tape. Okay, in the clip you're about to hear, uh, Pam and Tommy discovered that a giant safe that they have in their residence has been stolen, the um, contents of which they're going over in their heads. Let's listen. There's fucking guns in there, jewelry. I mean, who's going to bother with some stupid unmarked tape? I know, but if somebody plays that thing, Tommy. Nobody's going to play it. And, and, and they couldn't even if they wanted. It's high eight. Who the fuck has high eight? Yeah. God, I feel... violated. Don't you? Violated? Yeah, you don't? I mean, I feel more... pissed. Dana, let me start with you. Um, this is uh, this is a lot. I guess we had about four episodes to watch. Um, it almost, I wouldn't quite go so far as to say, has a Rashomon quality to it. You really get the Gautier story, Rogan, and his conflict with Tommy Lee, which makes him very sympathetic. You're almost rooting for him. Not, not to steal and publish this tape, but to take some kind of karmic retribution on on Tommy Lee, who stiffed him on a contracting job. Uh, as it goes from there, I think it attempts to be sympathetic and and humanistic towards all relevant parties. I am now very curious to hear what, what you made of it. I mean, first of all, I should say that this show is, is, is somewhat tailor-made for my enjoyment, just because of my own history with this story. I remember this sex tape story at the time and being really moved by that sex tape. Like, I just thought it was it was kind of this beautiful... <laughs> you know, romantic love story between the two of them. Of course, that was before, you know, abuse allegations surfaced between this couple. I don't know if that's going to come up later in the show. And, you know, they subsequently split. But I remember at the time feeling somewhat protective of Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee when this video came out. And as the show explores, I mean, a sex tape coming out in 1995, 1996, when this happened was very different from, you know, what subsequently happened with Paris Hilton, etc. In the, in the early 2000s, when having a sex tape beca- became a kind of badge of honor or a way to ascend to celebrity. It really was a violation of their privacy at the time. And it was hard to know, witnessing it from the outside, to what degree they were faking that um, and and had maybe intended to leak this. But when you see the story in this show, which I think that the, the bulk of this story of the robbery is true, you know, you realize that it really was something that they had made privately that that subsequently went out on the internet. So that was something I remember very clearly from 95, 96. And then much later, when I was writing for Slate, I reviewed Pamela Anderson's novel. She's written a few novels, but her first one was, I believe, in 2004. It was called Star, and it was a sort of semi-autobiographical Romana Clef about her own coming of age. And I really liked it. I don't know if it was to what extent it was written by her and, you know, ghostwritten, et cetera, but it was was kind of a, a, a story that made you really sympathetic with her. And so I've always had this feeling of, of sympathy with Pamela Anderson, even as I see her making, you know, bad public mistakes and, you know, siding with Julian Assange in ways that were disturbing. And she's just an interesting figure in the media and somebody who needed, I think, the kind of redemption that this show tries to give her. And then my other um, history with the show is just that I love Seth Rogen. I've had a crush on Seth Rogen ever since mm. Freaks and Geeks. And I really, really like him in the role of this, you know, as you say, this, um, this disgruntled carpenter who busts into their house. And I like the way the show swerves in between their points of view and kind of yeah. makes you decide 
decide who to side with. So, so far, I mean, it's it's light viewing. I would not say that it is, you know, one of the most profound shows I've ever seen, but I'm thoroughly entertained and plan to keep watching. Yeah. So, I mean, I think Dana, uh, Julia, Dana nails a couple of great, you know, very distinct aspects of the story. One is that it's very early on in the history of the internet. Social media doesn't exist yet. Um, these people still had a sense of themselves as, as famous as they were as private individuals with a, you know, a zone of, of untouchability that got badly violated. Uh, do we find ourselves in 2022 with Pamela Anderson as a kind of hero, and I, I mean that quite seriously, as a as sort of maybe the last person capable of drawing a line between her person and her public image, her private self, and the desire to monetize her highly sexualized image. Like, is this a, or is this, as some critics have argued, exploiting her all over again? Yeah, I mean, this show lands in the wake of a number of other reconsiderations of reviled public women of the 90s, right? Reviled maybe is a slightly strong word, but, you know, uh, we looked again at Marsha Clark in the uh, Ryan Murphy depiction of the OJ trial. We've we've looked again at Monica Lewinsky in a couple of different iterations of the Lewinsky story. You know, we've looked again at Britney Spears and what exactly was happening when everybody enjoyed the puffy pom-poms on her uh, twin pigtails, right? So, it it is of a piece and if that's all you knew about it i think it's quite satisfying i mean it's 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 really interesting lily james's performance as pamela anderson is uncanny it's one of those ones where you sort of forget what the real pamela anderson looks like the the way they've used prosthetics and costume and the way she um acts and and has has studied her subject it's really you know, quite impressive. Um, the thing that complicates it for me, well, there's two. One is Pamela Anderson has not blessed this project and it has been reported, in fact, that she's troubled by it and finds it re-traumatizing. And, you know, essentially this tape that she never wanted to be public is being exploited once again, you know, for all of us to look and gawk at. And sure, we're gawking at it through the thought process of, well, really, it was an intimate portrait of their young love. And, wasn't it fucked up how how we how the whole internet early internet was gawking, but here we are again gawking, and the woman at the center of it would prefer we not. It sounds like now that's not a legal argument. Like but the people who made this show have the right to make this show, I think, but um, it, it does complicate the viewing morally for me, and I'm curious how you guys feel about that. Mm-hmm. I, I will also say that once you know that some of the structural weirdnesses of the show begin to come into focus. It's based on this article about the theft of the safe and about Rand Gauthier, the character that Seth Rogen plays. But if you don't know that going in, when you're just watching it, you're like, why are we spending the whole first episode of this show on this scuzzy, vengeful carpenter Mm. who's like (laughs) leering at Pamela Anderson, you know? And, And I don't know. I found that the show itself circles around Pamela for a while before we get to know her in a way that, you know, arguably is sophisticated and and forcing us all to look closely again at the thing that's the dismissed object. But, you know, maybe it's also 
something they felt they had to do legally so that we're at, you know, we're like, on the one hand, Pamela Anderson was exploited and hurt. And on the other, like, isn't this sad sack carpenter's journey really worth a ton of our time and attention? Um, which is not to say it's not, I don't know, but it, it sat, I, I enjoyed it, but it didn't sit well with me for those reasons. Mm, I, I So, uh, Julia, first of all, I totally agree. Those are great comps to the Britney Spears, like reconsidering these lurid tales from our tabloid TV past. But this one rides a really dangerous line. I agree. I will say this. I do think that the Seth Rogen character, uh, Gautier, is a really interesting character. Now, whether he is in real life, I have no basis for saying, but he's quite beautifully and economically drawn here. Um, and I... I, I believe him as a real person in three dimensions. He's this down and out Hollywood schlub who's kind of an amateur theologian and operating on the absolute fringes of show business. And he develops a friendship with this porn star that's fascinating. She's ostensibly gay. He's kind of in love with her. Um, His total preoccupation with the idea of karma as a way of compensating that he himself is losing in life for reasons p- perhaps outside of his control. We flash back to his childhood. But so he, he takes enormous comfort in the idea that the universe kind of factors down to one, right? Like there's this, you take all of the inputs and you factor them all in and karma kind of gets you back to uh, a beautiful equilibrium in some sense. And and he justifies what he does. I mean, I think unreasonably at some level by saying that he is going to he he exists at this particular moment and in these circumstances to to act as you know the kind of karmic revenge on Tommy Lee who in this telling has fucked him over and is an absolute monster who I think is interesting is that as the show goes on you absolutely see Dana that this relationship was for who these people were was a a deep and really consuming romance and um and they didn't deserve what happened to them. And I think the show really works in a in a non-condescending way to give dignity and agency to Pamela Anderson, who wants to be an actress and is constantly being packaged as a slab of sex meat. Um, and, um, and I, you know, her, her pregnancy, which ends in a miscarriage, I, I think all of that didn't seem like token gestures in the direction of of deepening her to appease the feminists. I actually thought it was was it rang true in a way and I was I was astonished at how good this was. I have to say, I thought it was very funny. I mean, Nick Offerman as the pornographer friend of the Seth Rogen character who steps in and and uh, aids and abets this. He is so unbelievably well-drawn and funny, and Offerman is just perfectly cast. Did you know more people are now watching movies at home on VHS than in theaters? Seriously? Yeah. Tracy! Hey, is that the new thing? Is it called a landing strip? I love it. I love it. You should do one, too. Hey, Tracy. I mean, for that relationship alone, I thought it was was worth it, but I'm, I'm, I'm in it. I'm in it for the long haul. I, I, I really quite like this. Yeah, I I tend to agree. I mean, I I can understand as traumatized as she has been, not just by this scandal, but by her treatment by the press for decades, why Pamela Anderson would want nothing to do with it. But Lily James, who plays her extraordinarily well, I think, 
really wanted to get in touch with her, tried to get in touch with her as part of the research process. You know, she was the one who who wouldn't pick up the phone. And I feel like if she could bring herself to watch this, I can't imagine that she would be unhappy with the portrayal of her. Because especially as the show is going on, and I think this is going to happen more in the episodes that we haven't seen yet that haven't been released, it becomes her story. And there's an episode apparently that goes to her backstory, you know, sort of t- talks about her formation and how she and Tommy got together in the first place. I think she's played beautifully and is, is treated with great respect as a character. And I I was going to also mention in relation to this project of rehabilitating women of the 90s that Julia was talking about, that one of the directors, I think he directs the first few episodes, and an executive producer of the show is Craig Gillespie, who directed I, Tanya about Tanya Harding, right? Another sort of reviled 90s woman being uh, rehabilitated. And I think... In terms of the portrait, the fullness of the portrait that it gives of the situation, this is better than I, Tanya. I remember talking about I, Tanya at the time and saying that while Margot Robbie was great in that role, that there was something about that movie that was a little bit too um, sympathetic with Tanya and made it look as if, you know, breaking the knees of Nancy Kerrigan was just sort of a lark that some guys got up to that had nothing to do with her and let her off the hook, I thought, a little bit too easily. And so I appreciate that this show doesn't have a quality of being on any particular person's side and does that Rashomon zigzagging between perspectives. And yeah, I also feel like I'm in. I'm in with very few reservations and not least because Sebastian Stan and Lily James are perfect as Pam and Tommy. I mean, they're so, so good. Not only do they look and sound exactly like them, but they create really, really uh, believable and and dimensional characters for out of what could be, you know, these, these cardboard sex toys. Mm-hmm. Okay, we have something like consensus, beautifully put, both of you. And it's Pam and Tommy. It's on uh, Hulu. Uh, I say check it out, and if you do, we'd love to hear from you because there is a lot to unpack, as they say. Okay, moving on. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, before we go any further, this is typically in the podcast where we discuss business. Dana, I'm assuming we have some. uh, Fire away. Steve, our first item of business is to remind listeners that they can get a great deal on the audiobook edition of my new book, Cameraman, Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema, and the Invention of the 20th Century. If you go to slate.com slash Dana, you'll be able to get the audiobook, which is read by me, for just $13.99, which is $10 off the list price. And you'll be able to listen to it in your preferred podcast app, so there's no standalone app to download and no subscription fees. This deal is brought to you by Slate, which means your purchase not only supports me and my work, but it also helps support the important and distinctive Slate journalism you depend on. Once again, that's slate.com slash Dana for a special deal on my audiobook. Our second item of business is just to tell you about today's Slate Plus segment. This is an idea from Julia that was based on a a podcast that she loves and that we've interviewed the hosts for on our show before, Script Notes. Apparently, Script Notes recently had an episode where the hosts, John August and Craig Mazin, talked about which parts of other languages they wish they could steal and apply to English. Since all of us on this show have at least some experience with other languages, we thought we would weigh in on this and share which characteristics of a foreign language, whether it's a certain tense or a style of verb conjugation, some grammatical element, 
that we would like to adopt in English. So if you're a Slate Plus member, you can look forward to that discussion later on in the show. And of course, if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Members get ad-free podcasts and a lot of bonus content like the segment I just described. You'll also hear members-only programming on other Slate shows like Slow Burn and The Political Gab Fest. Plus, of course, members get unlimited access to all of the great writing on Slate.com. You'll never hit a paywall if you're a Slate Plus member. Last of all, I should say that when you subscribe to Slate Plus, you're supporting our work and the work of our wonderful colleagues. These memberships really matter to Slate. So please sign up today at Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Once again, that's Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Okay, Steve, what's next? All right, well, the Danish movie Flea, that's F-L-E-E, has already made Oscar history, whether or not it wins anything. It's been nominated for Best International Feature Film, Best Documentary Feature, and Best Animated Feature. It is the first movie ever to be nominated in all three categories. It's directed by uh, Jonas Poher Rasmussen, and it has, I would argue, two very defining qualities. First is that it's animated, and the second is that it allows the subject to speak almost entirely for himself. It's almost like a therapy session. Uh, The subject is Amin, it's a pseudonym, who escaped Afghanistan, then Moscow, where his family had been resettled, but where they were also being totally brutalized by local police and various other intolerant people. Amin resettled as a still a young boy in Copenhagen, where he became close childhood friends with the filmmaker. He, however, has kept, even from his close childhood friend, the harrowing tale of his five years of fleeing to himself. So in the documentary, more or less, he simply lies down as if on a therapist's couch, and begins to speak. And what he says gets dramatized with animation. It is a remarkable movie. It tells the remarkable story of personhood stolen and reclaimed. Uh, Let's listen to a clip, though. We need to set it up a little bit. This movie is overwhelmingly in Danish, though other languages also occur in it. But it's a remarkable soundscape. Um, And uh, we thought we'd just play a tiny bit of the movie to get you a taste of it. In this particular clip, the family is crammed down in the hold of a crude cargo-like ship um, with uh, at least a dozen or two other refugees. They're crammed in when a huge storm means the boat is now taking on water. They must bust out and begin bailing. It's a one of many harrowing moments. Uh, have a listen. <laughs> Julia, let me start with you. This is such an extraordinary and an original way to make a documentary, which is to simply have a subject speak their truth, but then instead of simply having a stationary camera on one person and maybe a few others along the way, you know, you animate it. Um, it almost makes you wonder why you haven't seen something like it before. What do you make of this extraordinary film? I completely agree. It's one of those novel filmmaking techniques that feels totally inevitable. I mean, if you think structurally about what's happening, you know, this is essentially a talking head documentary with dramatizations, which sounds like a terrible format, right? You picture like, you know, people, (laughs) actors doing a not great job, like acting out scenarios. The dramatization is not a much respected format, but using animation in incredibly creative ways to illustrate, you know, the, the memories of our subject, uh, and then also his 
conflict in the present is so effective that you just feel like, why aren't more documentaries made this way? And it also feels so perfect to the subject. You know, for one thing, this refugee who is revealing essentially that the circumstances under which he sought asylum in Dan- in Denmark were a lie, uh, you know, needs to be protected with some anonymity, uh, which the animation affords him. Um, but the the animation also manages to be really emotionally evocative, particularly of the ways in which after the traumatic years of, of fleeing and, and striving, uh, our protagonist is, is having a bit of trouble, like settling into a, a more secure and safe and comfortable life. And I, I, you know, it's, it's, I think the first time ever you said that the same film was nominated for, um, documentary feature, animated feature and, uh, international feature. And it's, makes sense. It excels on multiple fronts. I, I was really, uh, felt lucky to, to be able to see it. Uh, Dana. Yeah. I, I mean, I concur totally with Julia. Um, one thing I'd add is that in addition to being a, you know, I mean, just sort of broadly speaking, a human rights document, it's, it's also very specifically an LGBTQ story. He's, I mean, is gay. Um, and, and I love that it's both about how, brutalized you can be by certain kinds of regimes and and people but it's also about how way more than the bodily scars linger and they 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 operate as a barrier between you and who you might be in a otherwise paradisical place like Copenhagen what would you make of this movie I mean, one thing I wanted to say in response to Julia's, you know, commenting, I mean, correctly commenting on what a novel and unusual form this is. It's not unprecedented. And there was, in fact, a really acclaimed movie called Waltz with Bashir. Do either of you remember that movie? Yeah. Oh, 2008. Yeah, of course. Which yeah. was an animated documentary, uh, an Israeli movie that was about the flight of someone from from Lebanon, about the, someone's experience in the in the war in Lebanon in the 80s. Um, and it was similar in many ways in that it, you know, also kind of used animation to tell a, a traumatic true story of um, of war and escape. But it has one important distinction from Waltz with Bashir, which is that, and I think we have not talked about this yet, the director, Jonas Pohir Rasmussen, was old friends, is old friends with Amin, with the interview subject. They've known each other for 25 years. And so this this conversation that they're having, the, the, real, the real interview that's being animated in order to create this story, uh, is a conversation between these two old friends since high school, you know, who don't know all of these secrets with whom Amin has not shared all of these secrets, right? So you're also finding out in real time what this old friend is finding out about his friend who's had this series of experiences that, you know, I don't want to spoil anything, but they are not what the director thought that they were for all these years of friendship. So that just makes it such a layered and extraordinary document so that it has elements of a sort of therapy session. In fact, Amin is lying down while he's telling this story. Um, And of course, elements of a drama with reenactments. And it made me think a lot about how reenactments are usually just so deadly to a documentary for me with rare exceptions like you know, uh, Errol Morris can do it well, you know, but in general, as soon as there's some sort of live action reenactment of something in a documentary, no matter how well done, I just feel like I'm watching, you know, a bad History Channel documentary and, you know, where guys in Nazi uniforms are marching around pretending to be Nazis. And I would really rather just look at 
newsreel footage endlessly or, you know, newspaper headlines being filmed or something than have just the visuals filled up with this boring reenactment of exactly what's being said on the soundtrack, right? I feel like that's a big flaw in many, many documentaries with reenactments. And animation, especially really artfully done animation like this, just completely sidesteps that problem. And it becomes completely believable that, as Amin is saying, I was playing in the courtyard in Kabul as a child. You just see that happening, Mm -hmm. right? And it feels completely natural. And he feels like a character and not, you know, some actor that's being stuffed into a stiff reenactment costume. Uh, also, the the animation is so uh, changing, and I love the way that animation in this movie changes in style according to what part of the story is being told, so that there's this, you started to realize about an hour in, like there's the kind of trauma style of narration, when something yeah. really horrible to remember is happening and Amin is narrating it, like being in the hold of that ship, the animation style changes from being in color and being sort of realistic to being these vague black and white shapes and these kind of shifting, you know, chiaroscuro contrasts. And and it just works so incredibly well. You never ask, why did it change? It just, it seems to flow mm-hmm. naturally out of what's happening inside his mind. Yeah, I mean, I agree so whole, wholeheartedly with both of you. I think this movie is a, a revelation. I couldn't urge our listeners to watch it um, more. I, 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 where to even begin? I mean, the lead character has found himself substantially westernized in the sense that he's now a, a, about to go off to do a postdoc at Princeton. Um, you know, he's speaking for the a vast majority, if not virtually the whole therapeutic session in um, Danish, which of course he speaks now completely fluently. You know, he's, he's now part of the affluent first world, very educated, well-fed, West. Um, and, and yet fleeing is in his, his nerve endings and maybe his bones. And he's trying to figure that out. And what, in a way, what brings the documentary to a head is less, you know, his old childhood friend asking him a series of questions about what really happened and him being willing on tape to, to, um, describe what really happened. It's as much his inability to make a home with his, with his partner and, and the poignancy of the person for whom home was the only thing he wanted, right? He wanted a place that wasn't being bombed, raided. His father was a, uh, uh, was a political prisoner who was murdered, disappeared, made to disappear, and and clearly murdered. Um, you know, he was on the run for the formative part of his childhood and constantly in fear of disruption and, and total violation. And of course, of course, that person fantasized about, I mean, I don't know whether he specifically fantasized about being in the ultra-wealthy Scandinavian West or who knows, but he ended up in what that child would have thought was a kind of um, Valhalla. And he can't make himself feel at home there. And he seems to plainly love this person. There are scenes of domestic calm and and replenishment. I mean, sort of all of the things that one can get out of such a relationship, he is getting, right? It seems it's depicted as an untroubled and quite beautiful relationship. But can the part of him that is just, you know, self-protectively designed to flee stop fleeing? So it's, it's yes, it's a human rights document. Yes, it's about our inhumanity to one another. It's about what it's like for a human being to be on the victimized end of of history, and then you know to be given a golden opportunity to overcome that and find out that your existential warp and woof may be inextricable from it. So it's just a incredibly like just very deeply human and moving story. It's one of the better things I've seen in years. And I would be so disappointed, Gapfest listeners, if you don't 
uh, seek it out and 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 discover it. I like the new Steve will be disappointed in you if you don't watch this. That's like a new tactic after more than a decade of doing this show. Good, we got new tricks. Why well, I, I saved it for for this for- movie. <laughs> I already guilted people about not buying my book this week, so maybe that's just our new MO. Just You suck if you don't do the thing I'm telling you to do right now. Tune in next week. (laughs) But no, I agree with you completely. I mean, obviously part of what, you know, political flight, what being a refugee, what being displaced by geopolitics robs you of is the ability to lead your own life, right? Your own life where your choices are dictating what happens and your own personality is is the main weather system, right? And when, when you're driven by these geopolitical forces, there's just so little space to be a, a, a person, a full, a full person in the world whose selfhood is what's the primary animator, and and that's a theme in all kinds of migrant and refugee literature and art, um, but it's really beautifully documented here, and um, and I, you know, I mean, just the animation style, the conceit of using animation is novel and interesting and smart, but the style itself is beautiful, like the the way in which you sense the kind of trappedness or the stuckness of the grown-up Amin as he tries to settle into the the possibility of a, a safer, happier life. I love the choice of details. I love the the animation style. It's really evocative. Um, you know, the, the there's a moment where they're checking out a potential house to move into, he and his boyfriend, and the boyfriend is going on about whether some tree on the property is or is not a hazelnut tree and sort of nattering in a way that's both charming and oblivious and and the character is evasively playing with a cat and not engaging with the process of finding a home because maybe he's not ready to make one. Den vil gerne flytte lidt, ikke også? Men skal det fedt fordi alt det der der står hen der det har sådan noget. Hele vejen hen. Og det har sådan noget. Just that kind of eye for novelistic detail, you know, it's not, he's not just staring into the camera and being like, I really had trouble settling down with my nice seeming partner. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you're set in the, in the novelistic particulars of an individual's story in a way that helps make the point about what refugees are robbed of and what it means to try to rebuild. This movie contains among the most beautiful and moving coming out stories. I think I can recall. Uh, it is, oh, I wept. I wept. It's a it's a weeper. It is really a five hanky weeper, and it's not maudlin at all. Uh, it's really just so moving. All right, please check it out. Flee. This also is on Hulu. Now, don't. I'm making a list. Who's naughty and who's nice? You got to watch this. All right, report back. <laughs> I'm just imagining you're like building this panopticon where you surveil the streaming habits of our listeners. I would handle that. This is all going in a good direction. I I like what you're doing. I would handle that power so responsibly. Like the software with the eyeballs where they track your eyeballs, make sure that you're looking at every moment. Yeah, if I could spy on any human being now alive at will, I would not abuse that in the least. So (laughs) grant me that superpower. All right, moving on. 
Back in the 90s, Pepsi and Coca-Cola were in a heated race to try and win loyal customers by any means necessary. But when Pepsi launched an ambitious promotion that encouraged people to buy Pepsi and redeem points for prizes, they overlooked their own fine print in a major way. On each episode of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Like, who at Pepsi thought it would be a good idea to advertise that people could earn enough points to redeem a military jet as a prize? When they launched their Pepsi point system, they never imagined somebody might try to actually snag it, but a 23-year-old did, and suddenly, Pepsi owed him a jet. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. This podcast is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Most of you listening to this show right now are probably multitasking in some way or another. You might be driving, cleaning, exercising, maybe grocery shopping. But as long as you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing right now, and that's getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy, and you can save money by doing it right now from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner, and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. You lose friends to marriage, to parenthood, to politics, writes Jennifer Sr. in the latest uh, issue of the Atlantic Monthly. You lose friends to success, she goes on, to failure, to flukish strokes of good or ill luck. Sr.'s piece is exploring the dynamics of friendships as they come to an end. Uh, uh, Julia, a surprisingly underexplored topic. I mean, in the same way that you watch Flea and you're like, of course, this is the way to do this kind of documentary, to animate it. Um, this is one of those those journalistic subjects that when someone finally writes about it, and she did it beautifully in this piece, you wonder, how is it we don't have a more developed vocabulary for a huge life milestone, which is the end or death of friendships, our inability to honor them, um, and um, how they can haunt us once they're over? What do you make of this piece? This piece satisfied, or at least wedded, a yearning in me for more people to think more about this subject. You know, I have felt friendship starved during the pandemic or or friendship cherishing in in um, the various ways in which I've connected with and leaned on and had long walking phone calls with old friends around the country. Um, I, when my father was dying last summer in the final weeks, you know, three of my closest friends from high school each drove two hours from different corners of New England to come have one long indoor dinner in that window pre-Delta where it felt like we could do that. You know, we probably hadn't been in the same place for five years. We were a, a, a among kind of a, a tribe of young women and we've stayed close in some ways, but also like, as this piece describes, um, you know, <laughs> head down in work and parenthood and see you on the other side-ish. Um, 
And that gesture of support from them meant so much to me. But part of what we spent the evening talking about was like, how have you found friends in your grown-up life? Like we've all, we're all in different weird corners of the country most of the time. And, and you know, it was both what the evening was, a, a, a you know, beautiful moment of friendship that that helped me greatly in a difficult moment. And then also a conversation about how we're finding that support and network in our lives. I mean, it's just essential. It's essential and it's so understudied. And I both loved this piece, um, you know, shown a spotlight on it. And I will also say that I I almost felt underwhelmed at the end of it. Like it, it just whetted my appetite or wet my appetite and made me voracious for more. You know, I also think Jennifer Senior's most recent piece for The Atlantic, the one about the, the family torn apart after 9-11 and the conflict between the parents and the fiance of a, of a man who died, um, used one specific narrative to really explore difficult themes and interesting themes. And I was sort of hoping for something as bravura with this piece, but the piece structurally is a little bit more of a grab bag. You know, there's a bunch of anecdotes from senior's own life. There's, uh, you know, there's sort of one central dissolved relationship that is explored through a kind of long epistolary bit of nonfiction that the two women in it, you know, wrote together before their friendship ended. But there isn't quite the same, like, narrative heft. I, I both was like, yay, someone's finally writing about adult friendship, and then left the piece being like, I wish some more people would keep writing about it. I don't feel, I don't feel like I quite got uh, everything I want other than the, the kind of beacon on the horizon of like, oh, yes, okay, other people are interested in this. So, mm. yeah, I, I both enjoyed it and sort of want, wanted more. Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe not to be down on this piece, Jennifer Senior can write the hell out of this kind of thing. And I really liked her book, uh, All Work and No Fun, her book about parenting from, I don't know, probably 10 years ago or something now, uh, which had some similarities to this piece in that it was about social relationships and it was about saying the unsaid, you know, saying things that you don't usually say about a relationship, the parent-child relationship that gets very sentimentalized and mythologized. I really like that book. You know, obviously she's she's an excellent journalist, but I thought that this piece was, it felt unfinished or unformed. And that's why I would be interested to see what larger project it's a part of. In fact, the whole time I was reading it, I was thinking, oh, I'm so glad Julia's back on the show so I can talk to an editorial mind about this piece that I see as, as feeling almost like a, a good first draft or like part of a book that was cut in a strange way where, yeah, we have a bunch of third person stories. And then just at the moment she's kind of getting to the juice of her own experiences, the piece ends. And so I sort of felt like, great, I'm glad to know about those two nonfiction writers who, you know, had a spat via email, or these two scientists who collaborated, and then one of them betrayed the other. Those are all interesting anecdotes. But it seems like what she's warming up for is to talk about is to write something more memoir like about her own experiences. And and that was where the piece started to pick up juice for me. And it was, you know, four fifths of the way into it or something. Mm. Um, but that is, you know, that's a kind of an editorial comment in a way rather than um, than one on the themes and and the questions that she's asking, which I agree are far, far under asked. And as she points out, we don't have a societal set of rituals for friendship, right? There's no, you don't marry your friend or divorce your friend. You don't, you know, have confirmation classes in, in how to learn to be a friend. It's just something that you make up on the fly, and yet it's so important, and it is something that outlasts, obviously, many romantic relationships, right? I mean, you can easily find yourself, 
you know, in middle age, having gone through many relationships or marriages, um, but your friendships are something that you expect at least to last. And mm. so what happens when they time out and sort of how you decide when a friendship is over is um, is a huge question and one that's that's fascinating to talk about and has obviously no one real answer. It's not like we're going to invent those rituals and solve the problem. Uh, but but I agree with Julia. It's it's kind of the untapped region of you know, writing about relationships. Mm-hmm. We certainly have no shortage yeah. of writing about romantic relationships, about parenting, about relationships with your own parents, siblings even, right? But friendship is this much more gray zone, even though for most people who don't live in the same town as their family of origin, friends play a greater part in your daily life. Right. Well, I mean, what strikes me reading the piece is simply the enormity of the subject, that it's got a sociological dimension, a historical dimension, um, but also just in the course of one's own life, as 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 Jennifer makes plain, friends mean different things to you at different moments. A friendship made in childhood is different from one made in adolescence, from one made in your launch period, you know, one made in middle age, before kids, after kids. I mean, you know, why some persist over huge arcs of time, why some deeply meaningful ones are also evanescent. It's it's. It's a kind of wonderful mystery. And I think one of the reasons the subject hasn't been evaded exactly, but has been underserved is that is that we assume so much that friendship is an uncomplicated compensation for obligatory relationships that are deeply complicated. You escape into friendship from troubled family family relationships, from, you know, relationships to authority or or rivals. And it is designed, it, its essence comes from it being free of all those things and being freely chosen. But as she rightly says, that means it's ter- it's potentially terminal. And they very rarely end in a, in a pretty and mutual way. I mean, geography can sometimes intercede or a large life event or whatever. But this piece has a special poignancy for me because I believe very strongly that I appear in it because I was once incredibly close friends with Jennifer Sr. in the 90s. And just as a tiny bit of background, it was part of a general revelation about what friendship in New York City could be because I had just moved there. Uh, I'd always made friends in a you know academic setting. I'd been a student, a college student, then a grad student. And that was fine. That was wonderful. But now I was in this big pond. And affinity, especially in New York City, makes a huge difference. You know, you sort of meeting in sheer bulk so many people. And the disadvantage is they just flow th- into your life and right out again, who has time on and on. But but the massive upside is that is that affinity plays this wonderful role. And this you under you for the first time you understand, oh, there's this kind of niche of people that I get along with. They're a little bit odd. They're very smart. Uh, they're literary but not too that uh, they're smart, but not pretend. I mean, whatever. I mean, I'm now sort of, it sounds like I'm patting myself on the back. I mean, you know, I, I mean, you know, to someone else, they'd be all the horrible things they don't want to be friends with. My only point is that you can have suddenly in a large city, a tiny, tiny bullseye, and it will get hit repeatedly. So you end up not just finding like that one person that, you know, Wesleyan that you really get along with. It's that you find a crowd of people who fit this odd categorization. And, and Jen Senior was absolutely 100% at the center of this. She was way out in front of me as a writer, uh, as a journalist. She was at New York Magazine and killing it, just cover story after cover story. It was a delight to be her friend. And if you want to find the pieces, I said to Dana off mic, just do a search for the word 
testily in the document in that paragraph. I mean, Jen, if it's not me, I'm just egg is on my face. If it is me, egg is also on my face. So I thought it was important to say it. And the other thing I'd say is I think she depicts it with naked honesty. I, especially because I just had a kid and as a already self, I mean, a a mammothly self-centered, narrow bandwidth boy, in some sense, man boy, I hadn't yet undergone the transition that parenthood brought upon me, which is to finally fully understand what a total duty to another human being was and what it's like to consider their reality as on, on something like the same scale as your own. And so I was a fucking shit friend to her at a very key moment in her life. And I kind of remember saying something along those lines to her because at the very moment we might have repaired her friendship, I was completely overwhelmed because my daughter had been a preemie. And that was a 24-hour gig, you know, from the NICU home to, you know, uh, sterilizing everything she touched and and getting for literally a period of about, certainly six months, but close to a year, as close to zero sleep as a human being could get. And I, there's no doubt in, in my mind that I just recentered the problem of the friendship to me and just, you know, kind of dismissed what she was saying. And so I hope she listens to this. I hope she knows I'm sorry. And I remember our friendship so fondly. We had so much fucking fun. She's a riot. She's a tremendously gifted uh, journalist, obviously, but you know that wasn't why I, I, I loved her. So it, it happens. I mean, Julia, this arc of life, like you have people come together. It's the downside of affinity and they drift apart and we have no vocabulary for it. I thought this was an important first step in redressing that. Yeah. I mean, even just creating space for feeling the wounds of friendships lost or friendships realigned or, you know, friendships withered and slightly desiccated on the vine. Uh, There's an avocado tree in our backyard that may or may not be dead. (laughs) It's a daily mystery. Whether it can, whether a a symbol for everything in my life, life blood flows through its veins yet, or it needs to get ripped out. Um, And, yeah, just just creating space to say those feelings are real and those wounds can can hurt us and preoccupy us and take up some of the emotional space that that the search for romance can in in different ways. Uh I I really enjoyed that piece of it and would also nudge you, Steve, as as your colleague and friend to say, if in fact you want to say those things to Jen Senior, maybe you should email her rather than leave it to her to happen to listen to this segment of our show. <laughs> Ouch. Uh, I only read the piece this morning and was going to email her and will email her, but I just didn't. No, no, no. I didn't. I, 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 so you're saying I was a shit friend all over again. No, I've done to no, her no, what the no, movie is doing I'm to Pamela at all. Anderson. Just, it's okay. All right. <laughs> I am the dead avocado <laughs> tree. But listen, I mean, the one thing I want to say is is that the the hilarious coda to all of this is going to be the email I get from Jennifer Senior saying, "Dude, listen, <laughs> what the fuck's your problem? <laughs> I haven't thought about you in twenty you, years. You, I'm still pissed at. <laughs> yeah, or 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 like, wait, we're not." Like, I, we were friends in the 90s? I mean, or something like just... Because that's the other thing. It's just a problem of, like, scale and proportion. Like, y- you mean something to someone else. 
in a completely different way than they mean to you. That's the that's the nature of all human relationships is like misprision and and distortion or whatever. The idea that you can mean to someone else exactly what they mean to you is just a is just a fallacy. And and it it just it would be the nature of it for her to say, "Oh no, 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 that was that was this completely other person." Like you're still a navel gazing twin. Well, and that's you know, or, you know, I, that's anyway. where the lack of ritual comes in. It's like, you know, sure, sure, one's marriage vows can mean slightly different things, but basically, you're standing up in front of a bunch of people, you know, to be like, "Yep, this relationship's the most important one. <laughs> Gonna really focus on this one," you know. Whereas with friendship, there's no, you know, like, okay, let's mutually agree we're each each other's third most important friend, and so it feels balanced. Um, well, it's all tacitly negotiated, right? That's what's so painful about it. And then when it ends, that's only when you discover that the that the implicit contract, emotional contract in your own head was actually written in completely different terms than it was for this other person. Yeah, you know, Steve, listening to you talk about Jen Senior and your history with her and how this this article makes you wonder if she sees it the same way is kind of inspiring me to to reconnect with some friends that I have not broken with in any sense, but just, yeah, maybe drifted away from over the past decade. Because I feel a little bad sometimes that the pandemic did not improve most of my friendships. I mean, it didn't degrade them either. I didn't lose any friends during it. But I remember thinking at one point during the really isolated first year, oh, the good thing about this is that, you know, I'm going to be Zooming and calling and, you know, back in touch with people again. And I don't think, if anything, I think that Probably like a lot of people, I, I self-isolated even a little bit more, you know, and winnowed it down to the people that I'm really comfortable just texting without any preamble, <laughs> you know, any time of day or night. Um, but there's those in-between friends, people that you don't love any less, but that for whatever reason you speak to less and are less in touch with. And I want to I want to try to make sure that some of those people come back on the radar. Thanks to you and thanks to Jennifer Senior. So in spite of my structural critiques of the editing of this piece, uh, I think people should read it. And if it does become a book, I will read it. Okay. Well, the piece is "It's Your Friends Who Break Your Heart" by Jennifer Senior. It's about me, so I'd, I'd, I'd urge you to read it. Um, <laughs> that's a joke. All right, moving on. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Okay, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana, what do you uh, what do you have? Steve, I have an endorsement that's a little bit inspired by you, at least your style of endorsement, because I know that when you travel, you like to come back with some sort of local color, interesting thing from the region that you visited. And that just happened to me in connection with my book, because last week I went to two different places to do book events to Philly and to Rhode Island, uh, to Newport, Rhode Island. And the thing that I want to endorse is the bookstore in Newport, Rhode Island that hosted me uh, in great style. They actually have an apartment above the bookstore that they rent out as an Airbnb most of the year. But if they have a visiting author, they have a free place to stay above the bookstore, which is just adorable. It was part of why I said yes to the invitation. And they're called Charter Books. They're on Broadway, which is one of the main commercial streets of Newport. And it is just, Steve, you would love it. It's this heavenly little two-story bookstore, just beautifully curated. The guy who runs it and owns it picked me up from the train station. He made a little paper Buster Keaton 
Clayton face to pick me up so I would know who he was at the train station and like held it in front of his face on a stick. Like that's how adorable he was. He had read my book. The social media person for the store had read my book. And the young woman who set up the sales at the movie screening that we had in, in Newport had read my book. And they were all just so interested in, in books and ideas. And it was one of the most moving trips to just think that in the midst of the chaos that we're in in culture right now and nobody can pay attention to anything and our attention spans are fragmented and there's a pandemic and there were just all these people who were really excited about a book about 100-year-old silent movies. And we also screened a movie at this wonderful movie theater in the town. Anyway, I could go on about Newport and how much I loved it and how I can't wait to go back. But my endorsement is simply Charter Books in Newport, Rhode Island. If you're ever in that part of the country and you just want to have a, a wonderful afternoon with some really nice, smart people, go to Charter Books. I cannot wait to go. Oh, Dana, that, that was really great. Uh, Julia, what do you have? All right. I have a confession. So several years ago on this show, I endorsed an alarm clock. I said that finally, Braun had solved the problem of the alarm clock and made an alarm clock in which it was easy to set the time, easy to set the alarm, difficult to confuse the two, easy to snooze, easy to see it at night. Uh, I believe in the segment I might have promised to send you each an alarm clock, and I never did, so sorry about that. Um, but subsequently, I did buy alarm clocks for others in my life. I've given it for gifts. I've given some to my husband. And once I finally gave one to him, and he didn't use it, and then I opened it to put it in a different room where I wanted an alarm clock, I realized it was different than the clock I had recommended. And I thought, I got to get to the bottom of these alarm clocks that, you know, I, I think I've recommended an alarm clock, but maybe it's not actually good. Then I tucked this all on a dusty back shelf of my brain, thinking, hmm, not all brown clocks are made equally. I still owe Steve and Dana those clocks. I hope I didn't steer some of our listeners astray clockwise. And then I ignored it until January 13th, 2022, when John Mualem, the wonderful essayist, uh, writer, thinker, man about Twitter, tweeted at me, at Julia Turner, loyal listener to the Culture Fest, so much so that when you once recommended a particular alarm clock, I bought one, but immediately found it severely annoying and dumbly designed. Not picking a fight, just been wondering all these years whether you've moved on. (laughs) My bullshit called. Um, And then, um, anyway, it went on. But I tweeted back at him and made him send me pictures of his clock and then showed him pictures of my clock. And in fact, he had the subpar Braun alarm clock design, which does not have the pop-up button for for snoozing, for setting the alarm, and for the nightlight, and which doesn't have the easily accessible controls on the side, but instead has confusingly designed controls on the back. Anyway... He brought the wrong clock, and I, in fact, recommended the wrong clock. The clock you want, if you want a perfectly designed Braun alarm clock, is the BNC009, not the BC09. Uh, and that is that is what you need to do. So I we will need to post the correct clock. And uh, Dan and Steve, I guess I'll finally buy you those clocks and make them the correct clock. That's so great. I love John Mualem's writing and I love that he's the person who zeroed in on like the the call numbers of the clock being wrong. It just proves that, yeah, all of these words we've blathered over the years maybe actually sometimes (laughs) land in someone's brain. Terrifying thought. So a true story. I met John Mualem once, huge, huge fan of his work. I think I've endorsed at least one piece on here. He's been on the show, right? I think he came on once to about one of his articles. I think maybe he did. Yeah, Yeah, a a long time ago. Anyway, I met him once and, and we didn't become friends. 
(laughs) But it was, I think we liked each other enormously, but geography is destiny. And I was, it was California. I just landed and and like my brain just basically goes to sleep at 8 p.m. And it was, you know, 8 p.m. California time. It was just, it was, it was lovely. It was great. But, you know, uh, John, if you're listening, we'll we'll make a better stab at it in the future. Okay. Very... (laughs) Very, it's Steve's very... day for apologizing to friends on the podcast. He's yeah, got a long yeah, yeah. list. Oh, there's a yes, exactly. Um, but um, I uh, in- really enthusiastically endorse something that's going to seem slightly redundant to li- close listeners of this show. Um, but uh, there's a new book about. There are actually two books out simultaneously about four women philosophers. Uh, in the Oxbridge orbit in the 1930s when they were younger, where they I think matriculated in the 30s, roughly. They're not all exactly the same age, but uh, and then in the 30s and 40s began to publish and become prominent. The review of these two books by Thomas Nagel, the American philosopher, who's a hero of mine in the London Review of Books, is is so powerful for so many related reasons. Not the least of which is that he knew one of these remarkable women women and came into his own intellectually, at least partially under her tutelage. And that comes in only at the end of the piece, but it's it's a very uh, moving part of the article. But even up until then, Nagel is just, I mean, Nagel could very easily be an octogenarian. He is so sharp and alive to the importance of their work. And he picks out what I, I'd read a couple of reviews of this, dying to read at least one of these books, but I hadn't quite picked up on, on and uh, it might have been my fault, on the central fact, which is that the reason these four women were able to emerge together as important philosophers is that they were at uni at exactly the same time that the male philosophers were off fighting World War II. And so the space was at last created for them to express, self-express, explore what they thought of as central philosophical problems of knowledge. You could argue from the point of view of a woman, I would argue not from the point of view of a vaguely incel young self-important man. Um, and they became each in their own right le- legitimately world historically important Anglo uh, philosophers. So, and his review just beautifully recounts this. It, it, it understand. I mean, he's just the, he, he's just an extraordinary philosopher in and of his own right. So he under, he understands both their, he understands the relationship between their personalities, biography and their work, but the importance of their work, his ability to summarize with clarity. It's just a beautifully told story uh, as it comes out in a review essay. So I hope one day to read both books and endorse them for, for, for their own merits. But for now, I really, I would say this, this it's in the February 10th edition of the London review of books. It's called what is rude by the American philosopher, Thomas Nagel. Seek it out. Julia, thank you so much. This was a really fun show. Thank you. Dana, my not yet ex-friend Dana, ha, this was it was just lovely talking to you as always. Yes, a really good show this week. I enjoyed it. Uh, you will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest, or you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory theme music is by the composer Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. And our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's uh, let's hang out soon.
This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.